Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 71. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Michelle Coons from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Let's dig a little deeper. Dr. Michelle Coons is the Curator of Archaeology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. She studies ancient complex societies and is especially interested in ancient political dynamics, social networks, and how people of the past interacted with their environment. In her research, Dr. Coons uses different geophysical methods and remote sensing tools, as well as traditional archaeological techniques like excavation and pedestrian survey. She also specializes in ceramic analysis and radiocarbon dating. Michelle has conducted archaeological research throughout the United States, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and China. Michelle curates the archaeological collections at the DMNS from Latin America, North America, and Egypt. All right, everyone. Well, welcome to the show. Today, we are going to be talking with Michelle Coons, and we are just going to have a fun talk today about how you become a curator of archaeology and what you do and some of the really neat public outreach and uh, public archaeology projects that Michelle has been doing and the museum has been working on. Welcome to the show, Michelle. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Well, Michelle and I have worked kind of adjacent and on similar projects and run into each other a bunch since I've done all this work with the University of Denver and the Denver Amachi Project. So it's really exciting for me to finally get a chance to sit down and interview her and talk to you on the show. So yeah, definitely. We're really happy to have you here. Excited too, because yeah, we've sort of been sort of ships passing in the night many ways. (laughs) Yeah, no, we really have. And I was thinking about it today and I realized I think you might be the first kind of museum affiliated person that we've had on the show. Great. Yeah, well, I'm excited so. to to uh, you know participate in that capacity. Yeah. So I realized <laughs> that one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk to you about just to start this off is, you know, as a curator of archaeology and as an archaeologist who works in a museum, can you tell us a little bit about what that job really encompasses in the roles? Because when people visit museums, you know, they see what a couple percentage of the collection on display And you don't really get a sense of all of the logistics and things that go on in the back rooms behind all those closed doors. Sure. Yeah. So it's I I believe on average and it's about one percent of the collection is actually out on display. And we um, at at the DMNS and um, most museums have all kinds of things happening behind closed doors. And so it is pretty exciting to get to, um, you know, see what that's like and to make you know, make it, make it, make it happen, so to speak. Yeah. So as a curator of archaeology, are you just sort of supervising people 
watching the collections? Are you what what does it kind of encompass? What do I do? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, what, what, do you, um, what don't you do? Maybe the better question is what don't you do? That is, that is probably the more accurate question or uh, appropriate question, I should say. But yeah, so a curator is really, you know, so many different museums have curators and there's really no one definition. And from institution to institution, that role is going to vary and it can vary very significantly. Um, here at the Denver Museum, which is a uh, major natural history museum, Museum. So we're kind of similar to uh, museum. We're actually the fourth largest in the country. So um, we're similar to like the Field Museum, the um, Smithsonian, and have that sort of curator structure. My job is to do original research. So I have various research projects that I'm working on, um, just like any academic would. I also I'm, I curate specific collections. And so I'm in charge of the Latin American collection, um, a good portion of our North American collection and also our, our Egyptian collection. And so that means that I do research on parts of those collections or I facilitate research. So I get people in like experts in different subjects to come in and see uh, what we have so that we can make it more accessible. We are currently moving our um, archaeology collection from one place in the building and we built a new facility a couple years ago. And so we're moving into that right now and everything's getting a new box and a new house and it's going to be really beautiful when it's all there. And so just facilitating that work is something I'm involved in. And um, another big part of my job is the outreach and just getting people excited about archaeology and what that means um, in the museum. Yeah. So that's actually part of the reason I, we invited Michelle to be on the show is I she gave a phenomenal talk at our annual conference about some of the work that you've been doing at Magic Mountain, which is a prehistoric site outside of the Denver region and kind of the logistics of that. And it was absolutely wonderful. And so I kind of, we wanted to have you on to talk about that and talk about this idea of engaging people with archaeological research and how you went about it. And yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about why the museum does this public outreach? Sure. So actually, when I started here at the museum about um, even in my job talk about six years ago now, I can't believe that I said that one of my goals was to have a public archaeology project because the, this institution in particularly is really we're really well known for our dinosaur work and our all the work that we do in paleontology. And it's pretty um it's pretty ingrained into like the culture of this of this place and as well as Denver too everybody knows about the um, dinosaur footprints that are just down the road and um, I was like wow there's such an opportunity to for people to get engaged with archaeology and what's right in our backyard like, so many people are just unfamiliar that that even exists when you say archaeology in Colorado most people are thinking oh Mesa Verde there's nothing right here in Denver and so I was really passionate about doing this and just just bringing that passion because you know we love archaeology and we know that the public loves archaeology but they don't necessarily have as many um, avenues to get engaged in it as um, I think us as professionals would would like for them to have to, to be exposed to it and being in a public museum or a museum that is so public facing it was just a really great opportunity to be able to engage a lot of people in various kinds of 
of ways because we just have that capacity of with um, our media relations and also with our programming department where they could get involved and help us to really craft something um, that would be successful. So uh, I was really excited to be able to get this project off the ground at the site of Magic Mountain, which is a um, hunter-gatherer site that was occupied. We've, we've now, in our research, pushed the years back to um, about 9,000 years ago, up to about 1,000 years ago, and really get people of all different walks of life out there to experience what, you know, what life would have been like back, back in the past, but also just the whole science and process of archaeology. So can you just tell us a little bit about what the site of Magic Mountain is? So it's obviously a prehistoric site. It's 9,000 years old. But what's a little bit about the history of it? I mean, why why did you choose Magic Mountain as a site? A great, I mean, yeah. there's all of these hidden sites when you're walking around Colorado. So why this one? What's so special or interesting? Sure. Well, there's a couple of different reasons we chose this particular site. And it kind of is this perfect storm of, of reasons why. The site was originally, so it's a, a hunter-gatherer campground, and in our excavations and in previous excavations that happened at the site, we've found um, fire pits and evidence of people living on this. It's on the edge of a creek bed, um, right at the base of one of the major access points or, that goes up into the mountains. It was used as a this canyon or, you know, it's a gulch was used as a major um, road for wagon trains or, or wagons going up to the um, central city Black Hawk area, which is where a lot of the gold gold rush was happening in Colorado. And so it's a really prominent route that would have been used in the past, as well as um, even today, people are always biking and hiking right there. And so it's just, the site itself is in a really um, great location for it to where people could have lived for a really long time, but it's also a really great location um, for today because it's right at this trailhead. There are bathrooms. There's a very large parking lot <laughs> and it's very easy to get a lot of people in and to construct a tour of the area. That's like 45 minutes. And it just had logis- the, the logistics were perfect for just getting people to see it and to be exposed to it. So, but there's also been a very long um, history of the Denver Museum, which used to be the Colorado Museum of Natural History, um, their their involvement with the archaeology of the site. And we have many collections from there that have been collected going back into the 1930s. And so just that um, continuity of that history made it, it, it just was kind of the perfect storm of places to, to, to bring the public and to explore. Not only is it, it's also one of the biggest and most important sites in this region as well. So can you explain a little bit why it's one of these big important sites? Sure. I think a lot of it has to do with that access. I was talking about the ability Mm -hmm. to get into the mountains really easily. You also have fantastic views of the plains. It's located right on the bank of a stream, but there's also a natural spring right there. So people could have lived there really for long, long periods of time. Some of our research questions are questioning if people were using this only seasonally or if they were there more, more continuously, uh, there's sort of this, there's this idea that people were mobile hunter gatherers in this region and they would just go to certain areas for 
for example, like the winter, but um, we're questioning that and saying, well, maybe they were here for more like a couple years in a row rather than just just over winter months. The reason, another reason it is, it's a, in such a great location um, has to do a lot with the topography of this area. There's, it's right up against the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So directly at the, at the base of the foothills, but it's also in what is called the hog, a hogback valley the hogback valley so there's this geological formation where it creates sort of this little valley um, in the golden area that is um, climatically warmer than anything to the pl- to the east on the plains or also up in the mountains and so you find really the majority of archaeological sites in the region in this ho- hogback valley because of that protect it has that protection and so this site is located right in this hogback valley it has water and it, it was just a very very large site there's been thousands and thousands hundreds of thousands of objects that have been found there um, going back into the 30s when they were first recorded. Wow. I suppose that would lead into a conversation about the uh, curation problem in museums, but that might be a uh, conversation for another (laughs) episode. Um, I'm wondering, you know, this is called the Community Archaeology Project. What what sorts of things can the community um, really get into with this project? Is it, I mean, you mentioned tours, but are there other excavations or surveys or things like that that volunteers can get on and, and learn a little bit about the archaeological process? Yeah, so the way that we've run it is that we have, we had tours while we were out there excavating. We had tours every half an hour so we had volunteers who actually um, were our tour guides and gave and gave those tours we also the entire site was excavated by volunteers so we had about 70 volunteers doing the excavations and these were everything everybody from undergrads who had never had any experience who were excited about archaeology to um, retired professionals and kind of just ran the whole gamut and we would train them and had a schedule so that more experienced people could help train some of the less experienced people. We also did um, youth programming at the site. And so we had boys and girls club out there and other youth groups from the Denver area that we bust in and we provided them with lunches and um, just tried to give like a, give them a, a taste of what archeology span was like. And we had some, we have a program here at the museum called teen science scholars. And we had 14 teenagers, uh, high school students, out there with us the entire time. So it was very, very busy over the two years that we were out there, 2017 and 2018. Um, So we had to, we really ran for the project. We partnered, the museum partnered with Paleocultural Research Group, which is a nonprofit that is located in Colorado, and they do a lot of volunteer-based archaeology projects. And so they really helped us with the, it was a, a, a true partnership where they really helped us with the training of the volunteers, but also so conducting the, the science of the archaeology and then the museum um, was able to really contribute with our, like I was saying earlier, with our program staff and um, our project management to be able to kind of make it all, pull it off, off the ground. And so it was just a lot of orchestration involved. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, nice. You know, I'm a I'm a proponent of uh, huge proponent of digital archaeology, as as people who listen to my Archaeotech podcast know. With such a massive amount of material coming in, what sorts of uh, and this can be a short answer too. It's you're hitting the end of the segment because I'm just curious. What sorts of recording methods are you guys using to 
really catalog all this stuff and and hopefully not get overwhelmed. Yeah. Well, so for, fortunately, within our excavations in the last few years, we haven't had incredible amounts of material. I would say probably about mm. a total of maybe 13,000 objects, but this is also lots and lots of debitage. And so um, sure. not, you know, it's the hundreds of thousands of things have been found there, but we were not necessarily bringing in that much. We actually do mostly because of the sheer amount of volunteers. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of using, you know, digital methods for recording, but because of just the sheer amount of volunteers and the inability to have like tablets for everybody, we do, pretty much paper recording. Mm -hmm. What's been pretty nice, though, is that we were able to devise um, cataloging systems that work with the museum curation system, which is so often not the case because most most archaeologists are not necessarily working directly with museums and then numbers get all changed and it gets a little messy. But we're able to kind of go right from the field right into the museum because we have um, this compatible system and um, are able to work with we have um, volunteers and um, I have a few interns right now working with me, just getting cataloging and working through the photography of all that. So we can just like immediately get it up online. So we're trying to just, you know, make it, make it as fast as possible with that getting into the curation, which is, mm -hmm. is a bonus of working at a museum, I suppose. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. Well, I think on that note, we'll take it to our first break and come back and continue this conversation with Dr. Michelle Kuntz. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Welcome back to Episode 71 with Dr. Michelle Coons. And we are talking about museums and sites in the Magic Mountain Community Archaeology Project. I want to step back for a second, Michelle, and ask you about getting the job at the museum. You said you've been there for six years. Um, I know in archaeology, a lot of times we just kind of take jobs that come up because, you know, work. <laughs> did you did you always want to work in a museum or did this just kind of fall in your lap and now you've been here for so long and you and you like it? I mean, how'd that come about? It's um, it's actually a little bit of both. Um, I yeah. was fortunate. I love museums. I always have. I've always been just a passion of mine. And so while I was at grad school, both at um, when I was doing my master's at the University of Denver and even before that, I was always volunteering in museums or working in various jobs. 
jobs in museums, like everything from um, educa- museum education to helping catalog uh, different objects. When I got to grad school uh, for my PhD, I was working in um, the Peabody Museum throughout the, the a lot of the time I was there. And while I was writing my dissertation, I got really bored of just being by myself. So I volunteered at the Boston Museum of Science and was like an on-the-floor volunteer um, just for something fun to do. And this job came up. Well, it's actually, I started as a, a postdoc here. And uh, I... I was uh, when I was interviewing for that postdoc. Not only did I have, you know, uh, was just finishing my PhD in mm-hmm. um, archaeology, I I had had all of this museum experience throughout the throughout my um, career. So it just kind of was like, oh, this it made sense. And I had, had no, I, I it was my dream job, and I just didn't really know that it existed. <laughs> and um, so I got when I got here, I just absolutely it, it loved it. And while I was here, fortunately for me one of the curators left and they had to hire another curator. And so I felt like I was on a, a year long interview mm. <laughs> because, uh, because I was like, Oh my gosh, I really, really <laughs> want this job. I really, I can't, I can't mess up. And so I was very lucky and fortunate to, to get the permanent job about a year later. Nice. Is, is this the kind of thing you could see yourself just doing as a, as continuing the rest of your career? Or do you have other ambitions and things you want to do? I, I love this job. I nice. I just think it's I, it's it's a dream job. I still it's almost seven years I've been here, and um, with including the postdoc position. And I, I mean, there's constantly new and exciting things, and new challenges and opportunities, and I get to do things that I never thought in a million years I would do. Like for example, I have a book coming out um, in the spring on Egyptian mummies, which is mm-hmm. totally not my background research, <laughs> but uh, so it's. It's just it's just been just so fun to be able to to do exactly what I love in a way that in a place that I really really love. So yeah, I don't I don't plan on going anywhere as long as as long as they'll keep me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice, nice. Well, maybe let's get back to Magic Mountain a little bit. How did this? Uh affiliation between Magic Mountain and the museum start? It might be a little before your time, I'm, I'm assuming, but do, do you know the history of how that got that got going? I do. So the so there's actually the first mention of the site of Magic Mountain, which was not called that at the time. It was called the Apex site, um, came from actually the Smithsonian Magazine in the 1870s. There, there was some entry on how this was just a treasure trove of art, artifacts like in this one particular area. And people knew about the site because it was right near this mining um, supply town for the for where the um, the wagons would go up into mm-hmm. the mountains to supply the camps. But it was in the 1930s when actually uh, volunteers and muse- museum affiliated folks were out there at, in the area and they picked up some artifacts and they brought them to uh, to Colorado Natural History Museum at the time. And beca- they, that's when they first entered into the collection. It was right when the archaeology department um, was fo- was formed at the at this institution, and mm-hmm. in the night that really sparked the interest of two museum affiliated archaeologists in the 1940s to go out there and do some excavations, and it wasn't really up to what our snuff would be today, you know, up to par, <laughs> but we um, we have those artifacts here from the 19 the 1940s, but the, those that research um, then 
it prompted Cynthia Irwin Williams, who you know went on to have quite a, a career in archaeology. But she was a she was locally from Denver and was hanging out at the museum all the time. And she, um, as like when she was was a kid, and she eventually went on to Harvard to do her dissertation and do, and did her dissertation on the site of Magic Mountain and really defined mm. archaeology of the in the, on the Front Range with this site and still even terms we use of like uh, projectile point typology comes from her work there and and what she did and the, the her work was published through the museum although the collections um, her collections are are at Harvard but then we had then there was a another gap in time in the night in the 1990s there was another excavation at the site trying to like just to see just recheck and see how her work was gonna was holding up over those 30 years and advances in technology and um those collections are here at dmns and so we have quite a bit of materials and just long-term association with working at at magic mountain i should say it got its name in the 1950s when erwin williams was out there because at the time there was an amusement park that owned the property um it was a, a failed miserably amusement park it was in operation <laughs> for like a season it was uh, the vice president of disney world actually started it Whoa. and um and, and it was called magic mountain at the time and um that's how the site ended up with the uh, kind of fun name. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I never would have put that together. But for some reason, that totally makes sense, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. What other uh, outreach projects does the uh, does the museum have? I mean, museums are kind of all about outreach, right? It's the it's the total bag of the museum to, <laughs> to put things out there in the public for people to learn from. So, what are the types of outreach programs do you guys have, and what's your what's your focus on that? Oh man, we I mean. We're just constantly doing outreach in all different, all of our different departments. So like I was saying, our um, paleontology is incredibly active and they have, uh, I mean, just a couple weeks ago, another dinosaur was discovered in the construction in someone's backyard. And so, you know, all hands mm -hmm. on deck type stuff. But I mean, we're constantly doing just programs with kids like I, right now I can't even walk outside in the museum because it's summer camp season <laughs> it's just like, so I, I mean it, we tons of tons of children but we do you know tons of behind the scenes tours lots of which is really fun because people have no idea oftentimes that we have so many things back there um, yeah. we do lots and lots of lectures and uh, you know, I'll, be, I'll be given a topic and be like hey learn about this and do a planetarium show on like Aztec cosmology and I'm like, okay. So we just do all kinds of, you know, it, it really is. You, you, if you can dream it, we'll, we'll, pull, we'll pull something together. Nice. Nice. So, Michelle, how did you get so interested in museum outreach? I mean, you've said you just love museums and you've done dosing and education work. But, you know, what kind of drew you to this part of it? Well, I, I think it is my my passion for archaeology. I love it. You know, I've, I was that kid that was just, you know, just couldn't get enough of learning about like, the past and these just ancient cultures. And I also recognize that there are not that many real um opportunities for kids to to get to be engaged kids but even even lifelong learners to be engaged with archaeology because you know we are so academic or in you know in crm industry and there's just not we just don't have the that we don't, as a discipline, I feel like we're getting much, much, much better, I think, through over the years. But I, I just I, I was like, I just would love to be able to share this passion more and in ways that are 
easily accessible for people that they don't have to really search it out. It's like a big museum that's right there. It's like, hey, we, we want to give this to you. And so, um, uh, yeah, I think it just came from, uh, I guess, many years of sort of being also frustrated with my own little tiny project that I know nobody, maybe three people read my dissertation, you know, so <laughs> it's like, how would you do better than that? <laughs> we could do a lot better nice. because it's really cool stuff, right? So, um, so yeah. <laughs> I feel like every, every archaeologist who does public outreach ends up doing it because we are so fascinated and excited that we need this <laughs> outlet for sort of all of our excess enthusiasm about our own research. It's so true. And the next thing we know, we've got like, yeah. It's true. But, you know, I think the proof is in the pudding that people, they do like it. They are hungry for it. And so, yes, it is. It does definitely fulfill a selfish need. And I totally agree with you. <laughs> but it is this, it, I, I don't think that... It, it, it's not like just yelling at a wall. People do want to hear about it. They are excited and they're hungry for it. And so it's like, it is a definitely, if you build it, they will come kind of phenomena. I'm curious as a, you know, as a researcher, somebody who's, you know, done dissertation work, like you mentioned and things like that. Um, do you get much of a chance working in the museum setting to really ask your own questions, maybe do your own research, find funding for it and do it under the auspices of the museum like you would a university or something like that? Or is it more processing and dealing with things that are coming into the museum and existing collections? It's both actually. And so one of That's the parts cool. of big parts of my job is this original research component. And so I have a project in the Gila national forest. I just got back about two weeks ago. We're excavating a great Kiva. Um, I've been working there for about six years doing um, survey and, you know, trying to understand the landscapes of the Mogollon highlands. Um, I also um, nice. starting a new project. I'll leave in a week and I go to Peru for a couple weeks and starting a new project there. That's where I did my dissertation research. And so, again, I did my dissertation on Moche. And so we're looking looking at Moche on the North Coast. And um, so in many ways, it's actually great because I get to I have three major research projects going right now that I get to Mm. do field work for. But then I also do these opportunistic research projects like the Egyptian mummies project that I just uh, we just CT scanned and did a whole bunch of scientific analysis on those mummies and, um, you know, working with certain collections that we have that, um, you know, that I'm like very excited about and I get to investigate those and publish those. So <laughs> it really is uh, definitely a jack of all trades kind of a position because you kind of have to, you nice. know, d- get into everything. But um, yeah, so it is, a, it is a little bit of both of those things. Nice. All right. Well, we've got uh, a little bit shorter episode today for various technical reasons. So we're going to take our second break right now and come back and wrap up this discussion with Michelle in just a minute. Back in a second. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, Episode 71 with Dr. Michelle Coons. And Michelle, we talked a lot about museums, obviously, and what's going on and, and how you got into your job. But if somebody right now listening to this is either... I don't know, not an archaeologist at all or in some phase of their educational training and they want to go the museum route, what is some advice you can give them on getting into that, uh, getting into that job? Maybe some classes, focus some studies or just knowing the right people. I don't know. Um, that, it's a great question. I actually get asked this all the time. Nice. Um, and my, my biggest advice is to volunteer as much as possible at any kind of institution that'll take you big, small, and in all capacities. So just getting to learn the museum world inside and out, because every museum is different, but there's so many different kinds of jobs in museums too, that it's just, uh, the volunteering, it gets, it gets you into that. It gets your foot in the door, even if it's a different institution. And I, that's what I look for all the time when I'm reviewing um, job applications. Mm -hmm. And what about the future of the museum setting? Uh, we talked about this over on the Archaeotech podcast quite a bit, you know, with virtual reality and augmented reality and all these high tech things coming out are, you know, I'm sure you guys are at least having those discussions. I know that's a big technological shift and probably an expensive one for a museum to undertake to do these sorts of things. But in your conversations about this, are you looking at other types of jobs that you might need to hire for, like, you know, you might have to hire developers and, and people without archaeology degrees, <laughs> things like that yes. to help along with these things. So how are those conversations going at your museum? It's actually, it's a really exciting time to be in the yeah. museum. I would say we have a very, we have a, it's a large museum. There are 450 um, staff members here. Wow. So it's, it's, a, it's a very large institution. And as you can imagine, we have, you know, a massive IT department and digital media departments and people that are really thinking about all, all these things. We're in the process, which is super cool. We are gutting our entire first floor and we're doing this whole new, new thing. We don't even know exactly what it's going to be they're calling it future mm -hmm. first and, and they're mm -hmm. going out and they're interviewing all kinds of community members to see what people are interested in. And we're going to, you know, take it from there and really just use all these tools that are available now to kind of enhance experiences right now in one of those spaces, which is a temporary space, they have a whole, um, a VR arcade setup as an experience that you can come and um, do in the museum. And so I think that we're just going to see things get more and more exciting um, as this technology progresses. We're doing a lot more stuff outside in the communities, like no walls, stuff like Magic Mountain. So beyond, beyond the institutional walls and just trying to um, be relevant for people in whatever ways we possibly can. And so I, I'm really excited with technology where where yeah. we can possibly where it will take us you know someone you should probably talk to um, we just interviewed him yesterday for the second time the last time was about a year and a half ago but they got it's called lithodomos vr and oh, yeah. um yeah the uh the the gentleman who runs it he's got a phd in i think classical um, archaeology somehow and they're they're based about out of australia but they're doing basically virtual reality reconstructions of 
initially they're starting with a lot of like, you know, big famous classical, you know, Roman type stuff and things like that in that part of the world. But they're also contracting with places like museums such as yours to maybe highlight specific sites, come over, do photogrammetry and then create these applications where people can just I mean, I use the, the you know, practically free Google Cardboard and my iPhone, <laughs> download one of their apps, and you can stand. I was standing on this Roman amphitheater in Croatia with a voiceover narration and sound and things like that. And it just really puts you into the spot. And it's just a really cool way to experience things like that. So, you know, just maybe I'll send you send you Simon's email and you guys can get in contact and he can see, see how you guys can help each other. That'd be cool. Yeah, that sounds that's fantastic. Yeah, these are some of the yeah. things I would love to see in the future. I mean, of course, it's such a large institution there's so many different things going on, but yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's really interesting. Museums, it seems to me are both, we have this mindset that they can be very stodgy with these displays <laughs> and research, but at the same time, they've really begun adopting technology uh, in a way that, you know, I think academia and other archeological research is still catching up on. Uh, I mean, you were just talking about, the research and work you've been doing with the mummies and doing all the CT scanning and, you know, the way that museums have started approaching the analysis of collections is really interesting. Yeah, I think it really is. And I mean, I think it's interesting not being in an academic institution because you have to be a little bit more creative in how you form some of your partnerships, too. And so, for example, with the CT scanning, we we were able to partner with the Children's Hospital and take the mummies there. Um, and they got to go through the fun, like jungle themed scanner <laughs> where the kids go through. Um, and just, you know, it's just we have these different ways of getting to the same way, getting to the same like results as you would necess- as an academic. But we're, we're just a little we're, we're a little bit more. We can be more creative, not like we are more creative. We can be more creative in maybe where our funding comes from and where and who helps us with different things. And so I'm constantly learning and being like, I never even thought about doing it that way. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it is, it's a, it's a, it, it's an exciting place to be, to, to be able to experiment with pushing the envelope in certain ways. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Well, I'm curious, you, we've talked about some of the field work you've got coming up, some of the other things you're doing, but what's, what's next for, for the Magic Mountain Community Archaeology Project, for the museum, for you? I mean, what are some of the big things coming down the line here that you're allowed to talk about right now? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So um, we're taking this year off from Magic Mountain Project uh, just because uh, we are still doing all of our analysis, you know, we're, even Mm -hmm. this is a community project, we are very, very, very um, keen to have great science come out of it and really great publications. And so we need, we need to, we need some time to process all that. And so we're definitely taking this year off and we're going to evaluate what, what comes of it next, you know, because PCRG, who we're partnered with, it was, we're, all, we're both very committed to continuing to do these community archaeology projects. We're just not sure what that's going to look like. And so it's exciting. We're, we're figuring it out. Yeah. So I, I yeah, there's just lots of things coming down the pike and you just kind of, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just to, I'm not even sure yet. <laughs> I'll get back from Peru and I'll figure some stuff out. <laughs> Nice. Nice. Well, if there's, uh, is there anything else you want our listeners to know about the, uh, Denver museum of 
nature and science. <laughs> I was trying to, the DMNS, um, yes, so to speak. Helpful. Yeah. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know before we uh, before we sign off today? Um, I will definitely come visit us. We have uh, not only do we have tons of um, permanent exhibits, we also have two temporary exhibits at any given time. And we bring in like blockbuster shows that come from all over. What's actually really cool, I should add, um, in my job, we we assign curators to those shows. And so the curators are responsible for having to um, learn and teach the content to our volunteers Mm -hmm. so that we're making sure we're doing the best we possibly can. And so right now we have a show on Leonardo da Vinci and um, one on senses. And so it's just constantly like fun, new things are here. So if you're in the area, come visit. Awesome. Thank you. Well, uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show, Michelle, and I, and I hope to get you on to talk about some of your other research and, and maybe some, you know, new exhibits and things like that that are coming down the line for the DMNS. And uh, and I hope everything goes well and we'll we'll talk to you again in the future. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast. Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.